You're listening to Death of the Reader, Flex and Herds here, discussing Agatha Christie's And Then There Were None, chapters 7 to 13, and we are back once again with the undefeated Sean Britton <laughs> to, uh, to try and get him to drag through this case to solve it because Herds and I are on top of the solution. Mm-hmm. And Herds, I, mm. I thought that the appropriate way to uh, carry on through this novel today would be to, to read the poem. Oh my goodness. Which uh, underscores this entire event. Mm. If you're unfamiliar with the serial mystery, uh, serial mystery trope, it's it, it's it's a subgenre of murder mystery, often combined with the snowstorm chalet that we were talking about last week, wherein essentially you know a poem, a, a guiding piece, a structure to the crimes about to unfold is revealed to you at the start of the story, and uh, then over the course of it, you go through. And you see if you can keep ahead of the criminal responsible for the mess that is taking place. Ten little Indians went out to dine. One choked his little self, and then there were nine. Nine little Indians sat up very late. One overslept himself, and then there were eight. Eight little Indians traveled in Devon. One said he'd stay there, and then there were seven. Seven little Indians chopping up sticks. One chopped himself in halves, and then there were six. Six little Indians playing with a hive. A bumblebee stung one, and then there were five. Five little soldier boys going in for law. One got in chancery, and then there were four. And and that's that's it. That's the end of the poem, guys. No more. At least until next week. Tune in next week for the rest of the uh, the poem there. Yeah, normally we'd maybe recap the story a little bit, but in a se- in essence, Agatha Christie's And Then There Were None only has that much to recap for you. The crimes are going through exactly as they said. Sean, how did you enjoy this this stretch, this chaos, as uh, Agatha Christie played with our hearts and minds, <laughs> dragging us right through to the death of Justice Wargrave with a bullet wound to the head? Mm-hmm. Yeah, look, uh, absolutely. No, it was it was an interesting little series of events. Um, the summing up was useless. Uh, the, <laughs> the, the traditional sort of, you know, they get together and they go, who could have done this? And it's like, mm. well, everybody. Um, <laughs> well, that's, yeah. that's part of the point, isn't it? Yeah. <laughs> yeah, it's it's clearly part of the point, but it was no help to somebody who is is trying to yeah. read through and actually uh, solve the mystery. I'm just like, well, thanks a lot. That that got mm-hmm. me absolutely nowhere, such as <laughs> yeah. it were. Um, yeah, look, the, the next few deaths, I think, kind of unfolded. As I was expecting, we saw Mr. Rogers go, we saw uh, General MacArthur, mm-hmm. uh, and we saw Emily Brent sort of uh, stung, stung by a bee. Stung by a bee, uh-huh. as the poem says, you yeah, know, yeah. Um, cleverly enough. So, yeah, it was sort of uh, was unfolding uh, in that sense as, as kind of mm. expected, I, I kind of found. Mm. Um, but, yeah, look, very enjoyable. And then there was obviously, in terms of chaos, uh, that chaotic thought process at one point where you don't quite know who's thinking what and they're all jumping yeah. around between each other's heads, I guess. I think it's such a fascinating kind of contrast where, as you say, it could be anyone out of the the 10 characters. The playing field is completely level, but uh, Christy goes about it in such a way that every character feels distinct and all the deaths are completely different. Mm. You know, this isn't a, a serial murder case where, you know, Everybody dies in the same way by, like, you know, having their hand chopped off or, or whatever. You know, there's no uh, consistency other than it's it's generally a, a quick death of some kind. Um, and I do want to give a special shout out. My my favorite death, I think, in this novel uh, is General John Gordon MacArthur's mm-hmm. because he he has embraced death at this point. Mm. He is ready to go, and he even takes what I think is a very kind of classical 
death pose. Uh, he's ready to be like taken out to sea. <laughs> yeah. But because this is a murder mystery, he doesn't get the like poetic end that he wants. He's struck on the back of the head and his corpse is, is you know, dredged up for us all to see because we can't have that kind of poetic ending for his character. We need a body to examine, right? We've just come from Yukita Ayatsuji's The Decagon Murder Case, and I thought it was really interesting seeing MacArthur as the proto yeah. version of what we got with all of the characters having their little speech about their personal feelings and motivations yep. before yep. disappearing off yep. the scene. And the other thing I wanted to jump on there, Sean, is that you said that uh, anyone could have done it, but now that the characters are far enough in to actually uh, getting the crime resolved, I do like the way that they somewhat panicked and unsure of themselves go about trying to seal off ways that the crime can be committed. Yeah, actually, I, I really like that because it is most certainly a story where the characters, by and large, obviously the the villain has uh, uh, planned this out very, very exactingly, but the characters mm. are not assisting by acting in unnatural, stupid ways. They really are, you know, the uh, Walgrave takes us aside and goes, look, I'm not going to, you know, say I couldn't have done it. And, uh, yeah. you know, like I, I I, can't prove with any more evidence than any of you. So yeah. you're you're not going to take my word for it. That's that's fine. Yeah, that's so, reasonable. He's a very rational character. Yeah, yeah, very, very rational character. And then, you know, they take steps uh, to make sure that these uh, the weapons are locked up, that things are locked inside the metal box, and not mm-hmm. one person has control over the metal box. Such as they they unpack really really cleverly. It's just that they're not stupid; they are just being outthought. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I did really like the scene between Blore and Lombard where they're discussing why the two of them get the keys, <laughs> and it's yeah. basically like, well, I couldn't beat you up, and you couldn't beat me up, so this is the safest possible option. <laughs> yeah, we're, we're even. We could just beat each other up. That that could be good. Yeah. Like, what are the odds that it's both of us? <laughs> Looks um, at the camera. <laughs> yeah. It's also interesting that given, um, given that we have already diverged from poison-oriented deaths that we had for the first couple of murders, that it's in Chapter 11, the drugs that they choose to lock up of everything that they have on scene, the idea Mm. that they still want to keep other weapons and tools around to protect themselves, but because the drugs were the first ones on their mind, even though someone's been smacked in the back of the head with an axe Mm. and someone's been knocked over the head with a blunt object, Mm -hmm. they still see the drugs as like, this is what started it all, that's what we need to lock away. It's a really interesting moment of indirect characterization. I suppose that's also to do with the uh, the practicality of a, of a murder like this. Like, if you really are locked, you know, on an island in a mansion with a killer, anything around you could be used as a weapon, yeah. you know? A piece of string could be used as a, as a murder weapon for all you know. So how, how far can you really go to protect yourself in such a situation, I guess, you know? Yeah, I think the characters are really vying for any kind of control over the situation they for can sure. get. It's definitely... A bizarre stretch as well, because, you know, when you think about this was the first, you know, island serial murder of its type. There was no direct prototype that Agatha Christie had to work from. So all of these decisions that she made were very self-directed. And there's a great confidence in how much of that indirect characterization we get along with the intricacies of the puzzle, because obviously so much of this story is the puzzle that there's not as much room for exploring people's thoughts and feelings. I do want to say, just as like, I don't even know if there's a nitpick, just just for myself, usually I disregard maps in murder mysteries, but in this one in particular, I feel like having a map of the house (laughs) would have been really helpful 
because as far as I can tell, everything happens in either the drawing room or the dining room. And that's that. And like the characters rooms, like there are clearly other rooms in this house that I'm mixing together and thinking they're the same room because of just the way that my own, my own home that I live in, in real life is built. You know, I'm making assumptions. Yeah. I would have really eight liked bedrooms. Instead well, of 10. <laughs> in, in here's, here's a story for you back in the old, the old Contra house that I used to live in, like the kitchen and the dining room were the same room and they were pretty much openly connected to the lounge room. So that's that's basically the same room in the house that I grew up in. So anyway, I'm just saying I could have used the map. Uh, it would have been very helpful. Didn't, didn't help me at all in the Orient Express. I was tr- I had the map in <laughs> front of me for the Orient Express, and I was like, well, this character couldn't have gone past this. You know, like, map yeah. like you bastards. Yeah, you, uh, there's, there's you're a, all in on it together in the end. I, I mean, the true me. art of a murder mm. mystery map is misdirection. You would have for been sure. complaining in the other direction if you had <laughs> I maybe. Look, we don't know unless, you know. Somebody makes a map, you know, <laughs> somebody get that, get on that. I think the other thing that I wanted to point out uh, when we're talking about the story before we get into the puzzle explicitly later mm-hmm. in the show is just how much Agatha Christie seems to dislike women. <laughs> <laughs> I wasn't going to bring it up, but yeah. Oh, Vera. Oh, Emily Brent. What is happening? It's, you know, we already have Vera seemingly only being there to be a love interest and, 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 and a hyster- little hysterical. And he, no, hyster- well, that's the thing. She's she's like, I'm going to go and be hysterical now. And everyone says, oh, that Vera, she has a strong head on her shoulders. She couldn't possibly be hysterical. But she's like shouting about bees like, oh, oh. yes. And like the nursery rhyme, like mm-hmm. she's just being hysterical. Uh, this features into my second theory for this week. So, oh, uh, interesting. I, know. Oh. So, I know Agatha Christie, you know, um, just by reputation has something of a, a reputation for being bad about women. Yeah, but, yeah uh, for sure. Maybe, maybe I'm viewing it. Maybe the second theory I'm viewing this week uh, comes through perhaps two modern eyes. Yeah, maybe. Uh, yeah, we'll, we'll, we'll see. We'll, we'll see, see how we go. We get yeah. there. It's just one of the interesting things is diving back to characters in the Golden Age, be it uh, Roderick Allen from Nio Marsh, be it any of Agatha Christie's mm-hmm. characters. There's still that lens of the old-fashioned view of the world that you have to kind of dissect because, as mm. you say there, Sean, you, you can't really be sure if your theory is coming from that modern lens. So when Roderick Allen comes in with all of his bravado and <laughs> is, you know, making fun of the slightly queer characters in the story, you're like, ah, he's onto something here. It's like, no, that's the, <laughs> no. they just didn't like the queers back this is, then. Yeah. It's just not okay. Yeah. <laughs> I still enjoy Emily Brent as a caricature. It's I think it's just a shame there aren't more, you know, w- women in the story who act in a way that is reasonable. <laughs> I think that's the other way I can put it. Like, as we say, uh, Lombard and, and Bloor, you know, they're trying to like be the, be the manly man in the situation. That's how it seems. Um, but, uh, they, they have to keep a hold on the, on the female characters, that sort of thing. Yeah. And it doesn't come across super well modernized, you know? The other thing that I did like on that front, though, is that because so much of the characterization is indirect, it means that those moments aren't as confronting as they might be in a more modern style novel where we spend a lot of time directly with the characters. Mm -hmm. Because back in the Golden Age, you know, obviously there was still a lot of room for the authors to squeeze in stuff that was objectionable. And I'll chastise G.K. Chesterton again, Mm -hmm. Um, even though we've not covered him on the show. We may someday, but you got to you got to pick your battles there. Yeah, uh, for sure. But it, it's nice that it means that moments like the one with MacArthur where he's talking about how he's ready to pay for his crimes, yeah. you know, those come across so much stronger because they're an active moment of engagement with the character rather mm-hmm. than these passive swipes at yeah. the people that Agatha Christie just didn't <laughs> happen to I, like. I do like that on that topic, um, we're coming back to MacArthur again, best death in the whole best story. Death. Best death, easily. Uh, how he, you know, he has a sort of tragic... Uh, 
you know, that poetic ending um, was a character like Emily Brent just kind of dies, still fully immersed in her, her you know, her denial um, and her own, you know, her own authority and her, like, cocksuredness, for lack of a better word. I mean, it is interesting you know? with these characters, though, that we are dealing with murders that aren't murders with some of them. Yeah. Um, you know, MacArthur, it's justified, you know, to himself initially that right. uh, people die yeah. in war, essentially. Uh Emily Brent, you know, she she got rid of some, you know, a, a servant that didn't align with her values, and that mm-hmm. servant took their own life. I mean, you know, you can make your arguments about these not being morally good decisions, but they're also not necessarily murders, at least in, yeah. in Brent's case, and obviously in the case of Walgrave and, and such. Uh, mm-hmm. There are some that are obviously murders, but the killer really seems to have targeted people that are not murderers, they just happen to get away with yeah. with leading to people's deaths. Yeah, yeah. Mm. And I, I do like, actually, that uh, Vera, for all of her faults in a, from a storytelling perspective, uh, she does get a humanizing moment where when she comes up against the only other woman in the cast, Emily Brent, and Emily tells that story of the servant that was, you know, sent to their death, um, Vera thinks of Emily as a completely despicable creature. Um, Vera is, in that moment, given a bit of sympathy uh, but humanization from our end, as we see that she does have moral standards. Um, you know, it's a shame about the eight-year-old under your under your. Well, yeah. you know, we, we're not all perfect, Sean. <laughs> Come on. <laughs> yeah, it is definitely interesting diving back to the pasts of these characters in the way that Agatha Christie kind of retells some of the scenes that arguably led them to being here, the the mm. misdeeds they'd done before they arrived. Um, yeah. And one interesting thing that I also like about that is that as we have more of those scenes, the nomenclature of UN Owen starts to change. So at the start of the story, we immediately point out in chapter three that it's UN Owen. <gasps> That's like unknown. It's, it's unknown a secret person. unknown person. Yeah. But the further we get into the story and the more of these characters flashbacks to what they've done wrong in their lives we get, the more they start to suspect each other and the fewer yep. times unknown as a word in the story is used. The last time it's used in the entire book is after the murder in chapter nine. Yeah. So that means at that point, everyone is looking for specifically UN Owen because mm-hmm. they're looking for a person and not this yep. mystical, weird thing that's out to get yep. them. They they're, they're, don't trust each other anymore. Well, that, that's the thing, right? They're trying to put a human in that box and who knows if that's even possible? Who even knows? What to find out? I guess we will have to find out. We're going <laughs> to jump over and uh, yeah. towards the end of today's show, we're going to get Sean Britton to divulge his solution for this story. It's a tough one. I'm excited to get to it. You're listening to Death of the Reader. Flex and Herds here with you and Sean Britton discussing Agatha Christie's And Then There Were None. We'll be back in just a second. You're listening to Death of the Reader. Flex and Herds here with you and Sean Britton discussing Agatha Christie's iconic And Then There Were None, chapters 7 to 13. This is the last week Sean has to pose his solution before the truth is unveiled (laughs) on our next episode. And uh, Sean, I suppose you said earlier in this episode that you were sticking with your initial theory of Anthony James Marston, the amoral car driver who comes screaming in in his hot-rodded car at the, the beginning maniac. of the story. Is is that hot-rodded action all just a metaphor for the chaos he's now causing? <laughs> well, it's a, that's a fair question. It is a metaphor-heavy uh, metaphor piece of uh, writing. So, for yeah, sure. sure. You know, he's, he comes charging in, bullet the gates, and, uh, and knocks them all over. Sure. 
So what do you think? That's that's still your prevailing theory. How well, do you think that still works with all of these other deaths happening? I mean, I guess in fairness, reading through these chapters, I, I kind of got the sense that nothing went any further towards proving that theory, nothing mm. actually disproved it. So I kind of felt maybe a little cheated. I mean, although I liked... A little liked cheated. I, I, Interesting. I, I, I liked, the, I liked, the, uh, I liked my theory... But I didn't feel like there was any stronger proof I coming out say, of these, uh-huh. you, uh, these you, chapters. Yeah, because part of, you know, being on the show is that if you say, you know, this is my theory, I think this is the who, the how, and the why, uh, we generally, you know, give evidence, you know, in this, <laughs> this, this court of law uh, as to who we think the, the killer might be. I mean, the, only, know, thing that's, even, uh, the only thing that kind of suited it for me was the the dripping wet attacker. Uh-huh. Uh, you know, that uh, when when Brent is uh, was is attacked and killed... It's this dripping wet attacker that comes up behind her and also uh, one that interferes with Vera. And there doesn't seem to be any other characters, living characters, uh, that you could justifiably say are getting wet, nobody's noticing somehow that they're damp. So that would point me towards somebody who is no longer within the the living cast Mm. um, that is hiding somewhere, perhaps... Well, somewhere wet. Do, do you mm. think that the because they they sort of search the island, they see if they can find any hiding places. Mm. They find a, a cave, I think it is, over, yeah. on, over the side of the island. There's almost this authorial to. note to guarantee you that they could actually yeah. search the whole well, island. The it's thing. not that big. Do, yeah. do you think that you can trust that? Do, do you think that we are dealing with just ten characters? Do you think that there there might be a hiding place that the characters haven't haven't found yet? That a secret amphibious superhero, I, uh, Aquaman's yeah. out to get them. With a wetsuit? very yeah. clever hiding place of some description. Okay. No. Look, you're absolutely right. There's the description that basically is the author saying, look, trust me, trust me, they couldn't be on the islands. These guys have looked all over the island. There's nobody on the island. <laughs> oh, bloody tell you, mate. They couldn't be here at all. <laughs> it's impossible. So, like, I, I took that with a, perhaps a grain of salt, yeah. given that yeah. it is, it that's is a kind good, that's of... That's a good pun. Yeah, uh-huh. Given that it's kind of brushed right over. I mean, maybe maybe that's a mistake, but yeah, given that it is brushed over in such a in such a perfunctory manner that I kind of thought, well, maybe she's not telling us the whole truth there or maybe there is mm. something clever that uh, that isn't quite being discovered yet. So, really the only evidence I had for for continuing on with the other theory is a drip the dripping wet and I kind of wondered whether this situation kind of been manipulated um with a sense, probably with the Rogers, uh, you know, whether the Rogers oh. were initially in on it mm. and uh, and it assisted with the first murders before they were knocked off themselves. Well, well so. this is maybe another question for you, Sean. Do you, do you think it's possible that there are multiple multiple killers? Uh, that's a possibility because we see, you know, especially after, you know, the, the third and fourth deaths of MacArthur and Rogers, um, tensions increase even, even higher than they were previously and the characters stop thinking of this, you know, this this unknown, as we spoke about in the last part. And I don't know, do you think that maybe one of the the characters in that second half, that second half of the list there, I guess, might might also be doing killing. You know, they killed the the original killer and they're or maybe they've they're trying to find the real killer by by murdering other people out of suspicion. Do you think there's something like that going on? Well, I don't How know do if the, if there's two killers still remaining alive, I guess sure. would be you know, I, I kind of thought there might have been some involvement with some characters that are now uh, dead to me. The main thing that stuck in my craw was um, mm. Mrs. Rogers. The fear that she showed earlier in the novel just is outsized, and to me, hasn't been correctly explained away by sure. you know the oh she has this backstory and was just afraid she was she was afraid before the record came out. It's never quite been explained to me what she was so afraid of. Yeah, uh, previous okay. to that, so I kind of wondered if the Rogers had some involvement, whether you know they were in, involved in the first murder. 
Uh, Mrs. Rogers has then uh, been killed to keep quiet by Mr. Rogers, okay. and then the killer's gone and knocked off Mr. Rogers to keep him quiet as well. <laughs> it's yeah. a, what is it a Russian nesting doll of, of killers? <laughs> yeah. um, I mean, yeah. that would be a fun twist Do if you, just one each killed the next until they I got mean, to the end of the list. That would be a fantastic murder mystery <laughs> if that was the case. Uh, I would I would absolutely love it, that. It would warrant the story being this famous. It would. The, the other thing that you raised there, Sean, that, that draws my ire, Uh-oh. and the ire of the, the late, great S.S. Van Dyne, oh, no. is the rules. my favorite rule in murder mystery <laughs> that we adhere to on uh-huh. this show is that the truth of the problem must at all times be apparent. By this, he means that if the reader, after learning the explanation for the crime, should reread the book, they would see the solution had in a sense been staring them in the face or pointing to that one culprit. So if you're not sensing that Anthony Marston is the culprit all along, is that not a clue to you that maybe there's a different direction you might need to be leaning? Look, maybe I am not a C, as, as seasoned on the rules as, as perhaps yourself, Felix, so right. perhaps I am uh, missing out on something there. I mean, look, like I said, I've got more than one theory. That's still my prevailing one, but uh, okay. yeah, I, well, I did come up with a, one that is still among the living. I was going to say, do uh, for my second theory. jump on your second theory? You know, we got four characters left at this point. You think it's one of those four? My suspicion mm. uh, for the second theory is Ms. Vera Claythorne interesting, herself. Interesting. Yeah, yeah, Vera, um, I thought was perhaps a little bit suspicious. Has started to lose it, as we said a little bit earlier uh, in this part of the novel. She had that weird moment. I think when I first started to suspect it was the the visions that she experienced, all of the hallucinations she starts going through when she starts uh. talking about, okay, the, the kids she knocked off and, um, yeah. you know, seeing these other sort of visions hanging over other people as she kind of goes along. She's called not the hysterical type, and yet, as we say, she does fall apart in hysterics. Mm. Uh, so my theory was perhaps the guilt from knocking off the six-year-old or whatever it was and, uh, and then failing to actually... Um, marry the guy that she killed the child for, then yeah. failing mm. there has perhaps um, driven her driven her mad. Driven it's her true. Mad. Interesting. Many good murder mystery stories use love as the motive, as you suggest there. And it's also interesting because Vera Claythorne seems to have perhaps one of the most active uh, mm-hmm. crimes that she recalls in her personal history. Yeah, she recalls mm-hmm. it multiple times. She, like, has multiple dreams and thoughts about it. Well, the other thing on top of that, though, is I think, mm-hmm. you know, for example, General MacArthur uh, has the sense of guilt because he sent men into battle, but that's still an indirect action that yeah. led to their death. For sure. Whereas Vera Claythorne basically thought to herself, that child will not make it to the island. I will tell them to swim there <laughs> so they drown. Yeah, it's the most horribly. active of any of the ones we get from any that's of the characters. Sure. That's pretty cold. That's yeah. That's pretty cold. So, uh, yeah, I was starting to wonder a little bit about her. And, you know, as you say, she's got this active role as if she's a protagonist, as if she's got some sort of – she is the innocent – Maiden love interest and I. Yeah. None oh. of the blokes are doing it for me. I got to say, out of the living blokes, <laughs> none of them are. None of them are striking me. You don't think? You don't think Armstrong might have a hand in this? He is the doctor, and there have been several kills with you know medicine and drugs and things. He seems a bit uh, wishy washy to me. I guess Armstrong just doesn't seem like the way he's presenting himself. Just doesn't seem like a very strong. Interesting. Forthright. He doesn't character. have the, the yeah. strength of will, maybe, to to go through this. It definitely sort of is the archetype of an accomplice, though the not strong-willed person who has the means, the motive, and opportunity. Maybe. This is certainly this is that's certainly fair. Yeah, look, none of the blokes are doing it for me. Is uh, is uh, uh, in terms of uh, amongst the living. So Vera was the one I thought perhaps right. um, beneath suspicion for you, 
a lot of the blokes. You know, a lot of them are sort of saying, oh, look, a woman of couldn't have swung this this axe hard enough yeah. to do this and a woman couldn't have knocked this guy's head in and uh, she seems to me to be beneath suspicion at the moment. Do you think mm-hmm. that, I mean, we've only got four characters left. Do you, do you think that she'll be able to, you know, overwhelm two, three, three strong men, well, two strong men and Armstrong? <laughs> do you think that's, like, possible? Because <laughs> everyone who's been killed so far, except for um, uh, Anthony, the, the star of the novel has sort of been old or given up hope or unsuspecting, but now that there are only four characters left, two of them being very strong, capable men, you know, do you think that, that Vera could overpower them? I don't know if it'll fit the rhyme, mm-hmm. um, but <laughs> my presumption is they have a gun and they have been thinking long and hard about how yeah. to actually accomplish okay. these murders. Well, I mean, the other thing that's fun is that, as I mentioned, it's clear that none of the characters trust each other, so maybe now the plan is to set them after each other and just sit back and watch. Mm. Yeah, which was part of my... I was wondering as well whether that might fit into it again. If if somehow the Rogers were involved, if it was sort of a Congo line of killers, um, mm. perhaps that is part of the plan to actually have them turn on one another as uh, as things go on. Mm. Mm. I do still like, Sean, the way that your theory has kind of still leaned on the same thematics this week, even as you've turned to Vera, the idea <laughs> that the young may be dissatisfied or disillusioned with the sense of justice and mm. have brought these characters to kind of pay penance. You know, maybe there's the overwhelming sense of personal guilt that Vera might feel she's decided that, oh, well, these people are like me and thus they also need to go. Yeah, I'm almost like talking myself in more and more on Vera as we, <laughs> yeah. as we sit here. I'm, well, I'm, starting to, I'm starting to abandon Anthony and, and, and get more on Team Vera yeah. for this one. Well, And, yeah, I think part of that is they they committed these murders and got away from it and they have lived quite happily and comfortably. Yeah. She got away with murder, but she also didn't get what she wanted mm. out of it. It is also that, um, you know, I'm not the biggest fan of Van Dyne. I'll say that outright. But the rule that the, the criminal should be saying when they're facing the entire time, that's kind of difficult to do if the criminal is the first person to, to be killed. Yeah. Um, it makes for a good twist, for sure, and a good subversion. But I think that in a murder mystery, especially one in, which involves, like, social discourse and 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 the tension between the characters – Having the the killer be a, a character who can influence us either, you know, by being one of those living characters or through influencing somebody else, maybe an accomplice, we can learn a lot more about the culprit. Just um, when it comes to to yeah. motivation on mm. this one, I must say there's a big question and it might be completely irrelevant as this one goes on. Sure. Uh, especially since Brent is is now dead. Mm. My big question was Beatrice, um, the the suicide victim that was the, you know, her, her previous servant. Yeah. I'm I'm not entirely sure how long ago it was that Beatrice was meant to be around and what actually happened to the child in that situation, whether there was a child born out of that, who the father of that child might have been. I wasn't sure if that was going to come in Maybe. as part of the motivations or uh, or not, but that's kind of the big question mm. that was hanging over my head perhaps until Brent Brent died, maybe yeah. beyond. It maybe it, it even maybe reminds me of your discussion last week about how the culprit's internal monologue would have to be in some way different from everyone else, and maybe you could use those sorts of missing moments in flashbacks to lean you in the right direction. Out of your two main suspects, or anyone in the cast, who is your number one pick for culprit for this novel? All right, let's go with uh, go with Vera. All right, I'm, 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 I'm coming lock it in, Vera. To Vera. Let's go. Yeah. The why you're going to stick with the kind of sense of justice and personal guilt that we were speaking about previously, or and madness, mm. madness. I love um, madness, which it's I think good... you know follows to my thinking just the 
the treatment of women generally yeah. in this. Yeah. I mean, as Wargrave said, the character would have to be mad, whoever mm-hmm. it is. Mm-hmm. Well, to me, you know, like they were going on about Brent's re- religious mania that mm. when they when they were trying to set her up as a bit of a red herring, and to me, maybe that sort of feeds into the Parallel. actual motivations, just the wrong character. Yeah, maybe. And cool. finally, the the how. If you're sticking with Vera, I believe that she had an alibi for at least one of the crimes. Uh oh. It seemed that when uh, was it Mister Rogers was hit in the back of the head. She Copy was word. seen coming down from the bedrooms with the other characters. Climbing out a window. All righty. <laughs> I like it. The Howl climbs out windows. You know what? That's fair. I mean, I mean, they did establish with all the the characters, I, I seem to recall them pointing out that the killer would most likely return to bed and make themselves look as innocent as possible um, yeah. if they were smart. I mean, we have established that this is a perfectly normal house with no secret passageways, but you know, plenty of windows. Mm. Yeah, I suppose the other question, although I won't tie a point to this particularly, how, how do you think the the wet, dripping visage of the uh, killer ties into Vera Claythorne's actions? Yeah, look, that made things interesting. Like I say, that kind of steered me a little bit towards Anthony, but it did make me think if this is born of madness, mm. that that's a fair reflection of the way in which the child she killed died. Uh, uh, you know, drowning. She, she is wet dripping because back then she like That's was in, mm. in the water. She used water to kill someone. Yeah, so Great. she she has She's you a know, water monster. Her uh, her um evil persona, mm. you know, perhaps okay. takes over and she gets herself nice and wet and Jekyll and uh, Hyde moment. <laughs> yeah, she gets herself nice and wet and uh like, you know, we only have her perspective on the the seaweed in the room and the dripping wet attacker in the room. So she, she only needed to get wet once uh to he, to kill Brent. Maybe in the room she's sort of imagining things when she thinks, "Oh, there's somebody wet in the room and and here's some seaweed I hung up earlier. Yeah, so that, maybe that to me was, featured it. Yeah. It was just going to strangle someone with seaweed. Maybe that's where that's going. I can't yeah. imagine that would be terribly effective. That would be a pretty cool <laughs> just, death, though. That like, is just the worst. Strung up in seaweed. Like, that'd be great. The, that's a great uh, visual. The worst Batman villain of all time. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> seaweed man. Here he comes. He's <laughs> <laughs> like whips. Well, Sean, it has been a pleasure having you on Death of the Reader once again. We'll be back next week confirming from chapters 14 to the end whether or not Sean Britton was right whether or not justice is done here in And Then There Were None here we go you're listening to Death of the Reader here on 2SER 107.3 your murder mystery world tour we will see you then